we pulled them all out because they were getting new ones and we had all these old ones sitting at the shop but the scrap guy wouldn't take them with refrigerant in them so mechanic that i was working with that pulled them to pulling them out he comes along with his side cutters and snips all the lines and the shop's just filling up at cool air products we developed ac smart seal quick shot with professionals in mind it's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant lubricant and uv dye all in a single application it's non-toxic non-flammable 100 safe to the touch eco-friendly and compatible with all refrigerants it's a safe solution option backed by years of r&d intertech tested and has sealed millions of leaks ac smart seal the professional's choice what's up guys welcome to the podcast so listen here the industrial side of the industry it, to me it's it's a smaller niche because when you just drive around you see way more homes way more commercial buildings than you see industrial plants so to me it makes more sense and if you just do the math that it's a bit of a smaller niche but we still got to give love we still got to give exposure to that side of the industry so i've invited mark rebellis from armstrong fluid technology to come on and talk about some industrialized applications from his experience he's got many years experience in in this area and we're going to talk about some ammonia we're going to talk about uh, some industrialized processing that takes place in these places that a lot of us have never been in or seen and it's interesting if you're a true HVAC nerd. So listen up, guys. You'll learn some stuff. This is the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. This podcast is sponsored by The Master Group, and I was in the hydronics branch for the very first time and blown away by their wall they've got set up, the hydronics wall where they've got an electric boiler, they've got a bunch of different zones, they've got a snowmelt section, they've got an air handler, a hydronic air handler, if you guys are in and around the airport area, check out their hydronic branch. Just Google it. You'll get the address, the master hydronic branch. Check it out. It's very, very cool. Check out master.ca. This podcast is sponsored by Cintas. They're a one-stop blue-collar uniform garment center. So basically any garment you can think of under the, under the sun, they're going to have a solution for it. Jackets, pants, vests. Anything that your crew needs to wear to stay safe, dry, and, you know, comfortable. So check out Cintas.com forward slash HVAC Know It All for some solutions for your team. Welcome to the HVAC Know It All podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. All right, so industrial HVAC. There's there's a, a very small niche, I think, for that when it comes to the professionals in the industry. Because most of the professionals I speak to are commercial, residential, maybe some supermarket stuff. The industrial side is uh, it's a little different. There's not as many. Maybe there's not because there's not as many industrial plants as there are homes or smaller commercial buildings. What do you think about that, Mark, as, as far as the, it being a smaller part of the industry? Is that, you think that's true or am, am I maybe just making stuff up? It's more of a very much larger scale systems. I would agree with that. Like I have been in 
industrial plants and seen some of the, I was at Coca-Cola once, uh, a plant near, near me and the boilers in this plant, I think there was three or four of them. They were the biggest boilers I had have, I, I had ever seen. These things were, man, they, they, at least 20 feet high. They mm-hmm. had to, they had to have been. And, and as long as a bus. And I don't remember the firing rate on them, but it was something pretty, pretty substantial. You got good sized boilers that generate hot water. But then once you jump into the steam generation, you get your low pressure steam and then you go to your high pressure steam. And at that point, that is a whole nother ball game. Okay. So let me, let me stop you there for one minute. I'm going to draw a line low and high. What is your background and, and how do you, how did you gain your knowledge from the industrial applications? Oh, well, I got, before I came to Armstrong, I had, uh, what, almost 20 years in industrial maintenance and what was considered utilities, which is your refrigeration and boilers. I dealt a lot in ammonia and hydrous ammonia refrigeration, as well as the boilers from... <laughs> Uh, at Steuben, we had over, what is it, uh, 1,700 horsepower of high-pressure steam boilers. Wow. Okay, so listen, let, explain the difference between high and low-pressure steam. And then I want to talk to you about, since you were in maintenance in the industrial side, I want to talk about some some maintenance uh, that, you, that you took on uh, on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis to keep the plant running properly on the, the heating side and and in the, the industrial or process chiller side. So high and low steam, what's the difference between the two? The category between high and low steam is anything up to 10 PSI steam pressure is low. Okay. Anything above it is high. So high right. pressure can go anywhere from above 10 up to, well, I know a couple of people that I've worked with that worked on nuclear subs that were like 1,500 PSI. Wow. What were they doing with that amount of pressure on a sub? For the turbines and everything else. Oh, okay. You get, you need, the higher the pressure, you get the drier steam, more efficiency. And a lot of the subs in that were nuclear, so they dealt with high temp. But for gen- generally, for um, when I worked with Steuben and Perry's, yeah, that uh, we usually ran about 120, 125 psi steam. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 quite like I, I'm used to dealing with a few a few pounds of steam. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> nothing, nothing crazy. I, I don't have a lot of. Uh, I would say I don't have a lot of experience with steam, and my experience is. Definitely low pressure steam. Yeah. Well, but when I, you're dealing I, I, with the higher pressure steam, that's where they use that for doing the homogenizing and the pasteurizing of the dairy and processing and sterilization of equipment. Yeah. So the way they would pasteurize or homo- like, or the, the word you use was homogenize. Is that what you said? Well, homogenize is actually a different part of the system for dealing with dairy, but okay. pasteurizing is actually, um, bringing this, all the dairy up to a temperature and maintaining that temperature in order to sterilize it. And that's what all our dairy products have to go through in order to bring them to the public. Gotcha. Now I've seen, I've actually, I just seen a video the other day of a, 
a lady squirting milk from a cow right into her mouth. I mean, I guess it's not going to hurt. I've seen lots of people do it online. I guess it's not that bad if, if, um, but, but I get it. They, they want to sterilize the, the milk just to make sure there's no, there's no bacteria and there's nothing in there. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. But I actually grew up on raw milk. (laughs) Oh, did you? Oh yeah. But since, since we do pasteurize it in an industrial level, basically what, what we're doing is just, do we have a, a jacket that basically separates the steam from the milk and we heat up the outside of the jacket? Is that how it works? Cause I've seen this done in pharma there's, before. There's multiple different processes where a lot of them actually inject the steam directly into the milk as it's going through a process. And then it's put into a vacuum to draw the moisture and everything back out. Just out of uh, curiosity, what temperature do they bring it up to? to uh, usually, if I remember right, it's held it. It has to be held at at least 180 degrees for a certain amount of time, in order to. Is that is that Fahrenheit or Celsius? Fahrenheit. Okay, that's hot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to make <laughs> sure the process to keep it from burning and everything else. So it's kind of a real delicate balance. Yeah, I, I, I'd imagine so. Now, I want to ask you about the ice cream thing because I have a plant that's very close to me. It's a very famous Canadian brand of ice cream called Chapman. Is it ice cream, mainly ammonia plants that they're using to, to, to freeze the ice cream, keep it cold? Uh, generally, uh, it's the most efficient for low temp freeze, uh, freezing. For the freezing warehouses and everything, generally most of them have ammonia because it's uh, environmentally friendly. Um, and the boiling point of ammonia at atmospheric pressure is 28 below zero Fahrenheit. So it's a very efficient refrigerant. Although you have to maintain the systems, there's a high level of maintenance on it to ensure there's no releases into the so there's no danger to the public. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into that a little bit with you. Cause I remember a few years back, maybe five years ago, maybe it, it's hard to recall. Now there was uh, a few people that had died at a, an arena. I believe it was in Western Canada. I, I don't remember the, I, I, I don't think it was public. I think it was a couple of workers that worked in the facility and maybe even a, a technician uh, like that was an, an outside technician, like a, a contractor and they passed away from from the ammonia that was released, and I, I don't recall what happened. So maybe walk us through some of the things that we need to look at, maintain, and stay on top of, so we don't have these kinds of things happen. I mean, just a general, a little bit of a release of ammonia. It's highly corrosive. It's um, it's highly attractive to any moisture on your body, your eyes, anywhere on your body. Um, it can shut your lungs down and hide. If you ever smelled a bottle of liquid ammonia for cleaning, that's, that's nothing compared to pure anhydrous ammonia. And as long as you maintain the systems and everything, then you're actually in good shape. I mean, it's a highly efficient refrigerant, but you have to, you have to watch everything from your compressors, maintaining Checking for leaks, make sure that all your piping, your your piping's not because it 
in an ammonia system, it's usually piped throughout a plant. So you have to monitor all your piping, make sure there's no rust or corrosion on it, make sure it's insulated, make sure nobody's walking on the piping. That is a big thing. You get contractors and that, that they don't know any better. They'll actually start walking along and they'll walk on a pipe that's got high pressure ammonia in it. And I've seen that happen before where they've cracked a, cracked a line doing that. But other than that, I mean, it's really just monitoring and protecting the system. Um, and you got your, your primary components of your system that you have to, your compressors, um, generally they're either reset compressors or screw compressors. So you've got maintenance on those to make sure and re, you're always taking them and you got to take them apart and rebuild them on an annual basis. But is that right? So on an annual basis, you're taking apart the compressor, you're removing them, you're, you're isolating them. So maybe take us through this. Are, when we remove a compressor from an ammonia system, are you isolating the system from the compressor and removing it? Or do you have to somehow get the ammonia out before you can remove that compressor? Oh, well, you have to remove, if you're going to do any maintenance on it, yeah, you have to, you have to isolate the compressor and then you actually have pumps that can pull it down to a vacuum to pull all the ammonia out of that compressor and pump it back into the system. Okay. And then once you pull that compressor down into a deep vacuum, I mean, you're, you're talking 29, 30 inches of mercury that you're yep. pulling that thing down into a deep vacuum to pull every just bit to of remove it out of it. Yeah. Just to it. remove it from the system. Yeah. And you got to push it back into the, the regular system. And then at yep. that point, once you've then then you can break the seal, and as long as it's fully isolated, locked out, tagged out, everything, the whole whole deal, then you can break the seal on that unit, and you, it either comes down to replacing a shaft seal, or if you got contamination on the oil, you got to change the oil. Every couple of years, you have to change the oil in the in the, the compressor, so. Yeah, that's that's a normal thing, but it's a it's an ordeal, and there's an entire procedure that you have to go through to do that, and that's all. Then the actual procedures and everything that a lot of that falls under the OSHA regulations, and yeah, that's a that's a it's an ordeal. But as long as you keep your records straight and you keep your maintenance up. And you're take your monitoring because you're always monitoring for any irregularity. Even it comes down to, I always tell everybody when you're going into a compressor room and in an engine room, use your ears. Always listen because you'll always, you'll sit in there. And if you're in there enough, all of a sudden you'll hear something different. And that's a warning sign. Yeah. I know. I, I, I really like the fact that you said, listen, because I'm a big proponent of using your senses to do some basic uh, troubleshooting, just some, some prelim stuff to, to look, listen. I mean, you can smell things. Sometimes you eventually you taste something. I mean, you don't really want to, but <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many times I've tasted things by accident, right? You, you, you oh, yeah. bang something and when some, it comes to ammonia, some, the, the, the telltale is it's very, you can always smell it. 
But when it comes to anything else, if you're walking into your equipment room that's got the boilers or if you got air air cooled chillers on a roof, you always keep your ears open and keep your senses open because you can all of a sudden, you know, if you're there, they're like, all of a sudden you'll hear something. It's like, no, that's not supposed to be that way. It can be everything from a pump to a chiller to a compressor. It doesn't matter. Even an air compressor or anything, you'll hear a different sound. And that's definitely, what you have, to be a, yeah. you have to be aware of. Yeah. And I want to reiterate on what you said about removing the ammonia and putting it back in the system. Cause I'm, I'm sure there's some techs that didn't really understand that. I've done this before with traditional type refrigerants, where if I'm, if I want to work on the compressor, for instance, I can basically set up my recovery machine on the compressor, isolate the compressor, recover the refrigerant that's in the compressor and throw it back into like the receiver of the system or something like that. And then I can safely remove the compressor. So that's basically what you're doing. You're removing all of that refrigerant from the compressor, putting it back into the system once the compressor is isolated and, and bringing it down into a deep vacuum to make sure every ounce of ammonia is gone. So when you crack that, compressor bolt that the bolts or flanges or whatever however it's connected up to the system you aren't getting no whiff of that stuff coming out to to cause any potential danger right yeah you don't want to inhale i've actually i've actually had been in situations where i've given myself pneumonia from burning my lungs due to inhaling it from a couple of leaks and that it's it's not pleasant no it's it's not some you have to say somebody told me be careful. Well, a hundred percent you do. And, and that's why monitoring and stuff is, is, is really important. I remember somebody telling me once and I'm, I'm trying to recollect exactly what they said, but I remember they were saying they were working on ammonia and I think it might've been a, a, a teacher that I had maybe 20 years ago who was past retirement at that point <laughs> like a, an old old teacher right really old 20 years ago he was old who i don't even know if he's still alive but he worked on ammonia and he was saying that some of the, some parts of the system actually ran very very close to atmosphere just very very slight uh positive very very slight and he said like you could some t- sometimes take off parts and replace them while the system's still running because you're very close to atmosphere and you don't really have like a lot of um pressure behind whatever he was taking apart and coming out and, and affecting him, his health or whatever. But, but back in the day, we, we did things differently. Everybody knows that. Is that possible? Is that, is that a thing where people no. have done, done this <laughs> to, to your knowledge? That's honestly, that's stupid. <laughs> oh that's yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that's what he told that us. You never want to take because even the slightest bit of a difference in an atmospheric pressure if you've ever dealt with anhydrous ammonia, no, you do not want to have, and you don't want any of that. I mean, yeah, people can take shortcuts to, oh, just, yeah, we'll slap it off and back on. That is not the way to go. And, I mean, even the smallest amount of ammonia can kill you. Oh, for sure. If you get a for strong sure. enough contact, even all it takes is a cloud at, at atmospheric pressure, just a small bit 
uh, of a cloud coming at you, it'll kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and how it, how quick? Like, is it instant death? Uh, no, it's, it actually, if you inhale ammonia, it'll shut your esophagus down. It'll put you in convulsions, and it burns your lungs. So it's not instant death but it's painful. So I know a lot of techs love their headlamps strapped to their head. I'm, I've never been a huge fan of those things. I don't know why. I, I just don't like the fact that everywhere my head goes, the light shines, or if I have to get the light somewhere, I need to move my head in that position. So the next best thing that I found is a product by Yellow Jacket, and it's a neck light. So it goes around your neck, and it has a light on either side, and you can change the how bright the light is. There's two settings and there's two lights. There's one on each side of your neck and they're adjustable. You can move them up or down. So basically you can have one pointing down at a manual and one pointing in a unit, right? So when you turn your head, it's not going to move. You have to turn like your body type thing in order for the light to move. But I, I, I like it. Anyway, guys, the Testo 560i scale and intelligent valve is the next thing in technology that helps you be more efficient in the field. I have used it and gained trust in it to basically charge a system on its own by weight. That's where I left it. I left it by weight um, and I walked away and it, it charged by weight. When I came back, the scale had measured the weight and it had stopped charging through the intelligent valve. So it's just another it's, it's another step forward in progression and making our jobs a little bit easier in the field when we're multitasking. So if, if you use the Testo lineup or if you're thinking about it, um, check out the 560i scale by Testo. It's funny you said you got pneumonia because I know that, I remember I was in my shop once at the, this is going back years and years and years ago when I first entered the trade. I was in the shop and it wasn't really a thing where people cared so much about recovering refrigerant. And there was a bunch of these, uh, uh, they were called, uh, I can't remember what they're called. They, they slid in the wall, PTAC units, maybe they slid into the wall and, and they were, I think they were heat pumps and they had refrigerant in them and we pulled them all out cause they were getting new ones. And we had all these old ones sitting at the shop, but the scrap guy wouldn't take them with refrigerant in them. So mechanic that I was working with that pulled them, to pulling them out he comes along with his side cutters and snips all the lines and the shop's just filling up with r22 clouds clouds mm -hmm. of it and i'm like this can't be good to be breathing in and oh and no. I, or even I, I would, your standard refrigerant it's not all standard refrigerants are they're not uh, lethal to inhale but they're an oxygen um displacer no, displacer they will yeah. any any refrigerant and everything will displace the oxygen so then you suffocate yeah and that's that's exactly i didn't suffocate because we open ended up opening the bay door but i'm telling you for a couple of days and i felt this before when there's been a big refrigerant leak in, in a room and i i could feel it in my lower back like almost like i was getting sick like my lungs were filling with fluid i i could feel it like i was oh yeah it you, was harder to harder to breathe for a couple of days right you starved your lungs with oxygen yeah so the oxygen your lungs are trying to compensate for it yeah 
it's better than ammonia because ammonia is highly corrosive and it it goes and attacks you the the mucus and the moisture in your lungs it actually burns your lungs that's yeah. how like i said that's how i ended up getting pneumonia is because my lungs were actually burned mm -hmm. luckily it wasn't bad it wasn't real bad but it doesn't take much now with your regular refrigerants and everything then yeah you're depleting yourself and you're going into an oxygen deprived system environment and so you're going to feel it later just because your lungs are trying to recover from that. Yeah. And to me, like I couldn't believe the, so, so here's, here's something funny because back, back when I first started in the trade, nobody really looked at safety as being a thing. Some people did, some people didn't. I remember putting on uh, a latex glove to start working with some stuff and I got made fun of for it. And now if I don't wear a latex glove, people start, people start chirping me or not a latex glove. Cause I don't think latex is really, uh, in the gloves. I can't remember the, the, the black gloves. They're, they're like, a almost like they're, they're probably a, a very thick. Yeah. So it, it's good to use those, especially if you're working with metals that have are coated with oils and stuff. So they don't get absorbed into your, your body. And back, back then I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start wearing these gloves. And, and I got made fun of for wearing them. And now if I don't wear these gloves, people are, are wagging their, their finger at you from, from different angles of, of, of online forums and, and, and chats and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, it's very interesting how times have changed over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, a lot of things more, more of a focus from, on safety. Yeah. A lot of things have changed from years ago. People didn't really concern themselves with it, but now it's actually a matter of, protecting yourself and as well it's like in in the u.s we got the the osha is where i was part of process safety management which deals in all hazardous chemicals and any processing that uses it so yeah i mean you have to there is so many regulations and everything that you have to do you have to deal with now and it's not all it's it's actually mostly good it protects the people Yes, for sure. I, I think there is some safety. Uh, I, I don't know what, what to call them. May, procedures that can get a little bit over the top. Like I've read through some safety procedures at some places and I'm like, okay, I mean, this is a bit much and you guys are going to pay like double the amount of money to, <laughs> to, to, yeah. to have, uh, to, That's to have the all this done. Right? I, I know. I, I know. No, I, I, I know. I want to ask you a question, though. I, I mean, there, there's a lot of tools coming out now that help with lifting or help with uh, not using your forearms so much or, or squeezing down on tin snips and, and getting like that wear and tear in your arms and your body, your back, your knees. There, there's a lot of products coming out now that help with that stuff. And I find the younger ones... Are, are the ones that will make fun of you and say, oh, you can't lift that or you can't do that or or we, we becoming uh, children here. Like at your position after being within within the industries and seeing different safety procedures and, and going through different plants and stuff like that, would, would you change anything about the way you lifted or tools you used um, when you were younger to preserve your body now? Like, I don't know if you have any 
health issues from working and lifting and knees and back and all that. But would, oh, you, yeah. would you have changed anything? <laughs> would you? Would, yeah, most people do. But would you have changed anything back then to preserve yourself a little bit more? Yeah, if I if I knew better back then, yeah, I'd have to say that. Yeah, if they got nowadays, it's like it's it comes back to the old saying: work smarter, not harder. Yep. Don't don't sit there and try. Oh yeah, well I don't need I don't need that thing to lift this up. I can lift it up until you have a hernia. <laughs> and yeah, and it yeah, there's there's yeah anything that makes it not necessarily easier but more efficient to to actually do your job where you're not gonna hurt yourself that's always a good thing yeah my knees my back everything it hurts and yeah i did it i i was one of them that yeah well i don't need that i can just do this but yeah now i'm paying for it yeah no for sure um so i on on the i, I was going to talk to you about the heating side of things in a, an industrial plant but i mean that could be another half hour long conversation because we talked about some of the cooling stuff so let's maybe just stay on the cooling th- stuff for a few more minutes and then we'll uh we'll call it a we'll, we'll call it a night for sure but as far as the ammonia and in a plant like an ice cream plant what sort of temperatures are we keeping that ice cream at is there different uh processes where it's at this process when we're doing this and and then storage once it's done like maybe walk us through that a little bit Oh yeah, um, like your standard, um, like your standard packages ice cream. I mean, you've got when the ice cream is first made. Yeah, actually, honestly, that's the best. We hey, we used to get to sample it as it came out of the machine. It was more oh, wow. custard. You had to quality control. You had to make sure it was good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was kind of a custard consistency. But then as soon as it goes from there, um, we would, there was different processes where if you had like, we had one machine that took the half gallon cartons and they were loaded in there and they were, that instantly froze them. The, those, the plates and everything in that system went to, I believe it was 40 below zero in order to flash freeze them. So it doesn't crystallize or anything. That's what keeps, that's the difference between having ice cream when you let it thaw a little bit and you freeze it and it gets crystally. That's where you have to make sure it's flash frozen. And then other, the novelty products, our wind tunnel, it was at about, I think 28 or 32 below zero Fahrenheit. So it was all flash frozen. And then the freezers itself, the warehouses, were kept at about 20 below for storage. Okay. So that's where ammonia came in really good because at atmospheric, it was 28 below zero boiling point or is where it would actually pull the temperature down. And if you pull it into a vacuum, you could easily get down to 40 below zero. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you, you said flash freeze and wind tunnel. So I, I, 
I've never worked on a flash freezer or I don't even think I've seen a flash freezer. How does a flash freezer work to, to get something that's not at, at the temperature you want it to be prior? And then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, it's, it's down to the temperature you need it to be. So how long does it take and what is the process to flash well, freeze? Well, the, I know when we work, when I worked the ice cream plant, it would actually go in and there would be racks and it would be fed into the um, machine. And it was basically a wind tunnel. Okay. So you had the temperature, it was maintained at I think 28 below zero. And it would load it into onto racks that were on a conveyor that as it loaded, it also unloaded. So it would load the stuff in. It would only take about an hour or so to get through. It'd be unloaded, and that would instantly drop the temperature. And that was the whole idea of making the core temperature of the product frozen deep freeze very quickly, which prevents the ice crystals to form. And that's what main, that's what keeps the ice cream nice and creamy. Yeah, because everybody knows when you get crystallized ice cream, it's 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 kind of gross. It's not yeah. really that's where tasty it, at all. if it's crystallized, then it probably was thawed out and put into a regular freezer. Yeah, okay. they do that with the meat industry and everything else too to keep the meat from crystallizing. That's why you you shouldn't refreeze raw meat because you th- once it's thawed out, if it's been frozen, flash frozen, then once you try to refreeze it, it crystallizes and gets grainy. Yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, I've noticed that with a few different things. Now, I'm interested in this wind tunnel thing. What provides the airflow? What type of fan are they using in the wind tunnel? Oh well, they actually got. I mean, they'll have anywhere from. I mean, you might have a six foot fan blade, multi fan, multi blade fan, multiple fans blowing right across the coil. And just circulating the air throughout the the room. Just like a prop fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, high velocity. Okay. So it's circulating that air constantly, which it's just about enough to blow the product off the uh, shelves, but not quite enough. And, yeah, you don't want to be in there when it's running. No, no, for sure. (laughs) For sure. I've got a hard time being in... uh... I, when I used to do some, some pharmaceutical stuff, I would, I'd be in minus 40, uh, blood plasma freezers and we'd have to set up fans around, not, not just the fans that are part of the evaporator, but fans around the the freezer itself to generate enough airflow because of the amount of sensors that were in there. We had to have uniformity across the sensors because if one sensor was reading three degrees, uh, higher and the other one was reading three degrees lower on different sides of the, the freezer the off. there there there'd be an alarm and yep and i started telling them once we when you build these freezers we need to put in supplemental fans so we have air movement at every single square inch of that freezer otherwise you're going to have dead zones and you're going to have sensor issues and it's not yep. that the box has an issue it's just that you have a dead air zone and you, you don't have flow around it, so it's yeah, not picking up different size boxes or anything. Guess what? You just got a blockage right there, which can block a sensor. 
Yeah. I, I don't, do you know how many Mark, you know, how many conversations I've had with uh, f- people that work in these facilities about blocking sensors. And mm-hmm. then I get a call, I get a call. Oh, the freezer's not working. I go in sensors blocked. Didn't I guys, didn't I tell you guys this last week, <laughs> not to block <laughs> oh, the yeah. sensors Did didn't I tell you two weeks ago, not to load too much product into the freezer or the cooler while it's warm because it's not going to be able to bring the temperature down and you're going to go off on alarm. So many conversations I've had through the years with people and the same thing just kept happening and happening and happening. But hey, I got paid to go out and, and do the easy service call. So I mean, yeah, that's one thing that's good with the wind tunnels. It just constantly, it feeds it in and feeds it out as it unloads, a, as it loads a shelf, it unloads a shelf. So it's constantly rotating and that's where the flash freeze works best. Thanks Mark for getting on here with me. Now, ammonia, yeah, can be very, very dangerous. So if you guys are getting into ammonia or thinking about getting into ammonia, make sure that you get all the proper training that you need in order to stay safe, right? It's just knowledge is power. I'll always go back to that statement. Knowledge is power. That's it, guys. I'm out. Happy HVAC. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.